All right, let's all stand as we take a look at this passage in Acts 18. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sincrea, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to uh, Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail for Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Galileo is called a proconsul or a, a governor of Achaia. This was the most important part of what was Greece. We know that this was around 51 AD because we have some archaeological findings that have uh, Galileo ruling during this time. Um, Galileo's brother was Seneca, the famous philosopher. And he said this about his brother Galileo. Even those who love my brother Galileo to the utmost of their power do not love him enough. And also, no man was ever as sweet as the one as Galileo is to all. Isn't that nice? words my wife uttered to me this morning as I got up, and I just, <laughs> said, thank you, honey. The Jews brought Paul before the governor while he was seated at the tribunal, and this is a stone platform in the agora of the city, whose sight can actually still be seen. It's not clear whether Paul was forcibly brought before this tribunal or whether he came on his own accord. But we do know that the Jews were going to charge him again unfairly. This has been done time and time again. Their charge was that Paul was persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Well, are they referring to the Roman law or to the Jewish law? There were Roman laws that said that you could not proselytize a Roman citizen for a foreign cult. But I believe that Galileo obviously did not understand the, the Jewish charge that was being made in terms of the theology of it 
And this is what he's talking about. He saw for what it was, an a, uh, internal dispute of theological matters with the Jews. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names of, and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. The first and most important thing about this ruling to understand that Galileo makes is this is a fulfillment of prophecy. Because in the section just before this, Paul had a vision in Acts 18.9, and it says this, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. God promised Paul that while he was in Corinth, he would not be harmed. Now, it's interesting that we don't see a promise like that given in other cities, but here he says, you're not going to be harmed. And God used, get this, a Roman pagan official who would not listen to the Jewish charge, he would throw them out of this tribunal. And thus, this prophecy was fulfilled. Perhaps Paul was nervous going to the tribunal. I mean, who could question that? Who would blame the guy, right? I mean, everywhere he's been, the Jews have caused problems for him. He's been beaten. He's been jailed, right? He's been lied about everywhere he's gone. And even though given the promise of God, most of us would find it unsettling that we have to answer before a group of religious zealots who are set out for our destruction. Yet it was God who was still in control. It's like we saw in the video. The Jews were not in control. And they would find out shortly that fact. They got kicked out of the meeting. And even Galileo was not in control. About 10 years later, when a political mess had arrived, he commits suicide. Paul didn't know any of this, though, right? All he knew is that God had promised him. I mean, we can't see how things are going to turn out for us. Perhaps it's a marriage, perhaps it's a job, some relationship, a financial deal. But it's helpful to know that God moved in the heart of a pagan king, a pagan ruler, governor. And it's the same God who holds the world in place. He is our heavenly father. That's great news. The Lord is my strength, said the psalmist, and my shield. In him, my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exalts, and with my song, I give thanks to him. Joshua said, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Paul did not even have to defend himself, didn't have to open his mouth. 
Galileo told the Jews that if Paul had actually broken a Roman law, that he would see to it that justice would be administered to Paul. Their complaint, though, had to do with Jewish law, Jewish theology. And they cannot possibly expect a a Roman ruler to judge on such a religious matter. So he, he refused to be drawn into this inner squabble. And we have to remember an important point here. The city of Rome before this time, under Claudius, had kicked out all of the Jews from Rome, right? Most of the uppity ups in Rome, or even just Romans for that matter, who lived anywhere, they were anti-Semitic, okay? That's just the way most people were. And so we're we're not saying that Galileo uh, was embracing Christianity, he was more rejecting Judaism. It just so happened that that put a death blow to Jewish persecution to the Christian church here in Corinth. The Jews were ordered out of the court, and apparently they wouldn't leave on their own volition, so they had to be forced to leave. Verse 17, they all see Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. Now, it wasn't uncommon to have multiple leaders in a synagogue, so we don't know if Sosthenes replaced Crispus, who came to Christ, a a synagogue leader, in Acts 18.8. There was also a Sosthenes mentioned in 1 Corinthians 1.1, who was called a brother, so he came to Christ. And Sosthenes was not an unusual name in that day, so we can't be entirely sure whether it's the same guy. But if it is the same person, What you have then are two leaders of a Jewish synagogue who were converted to Christ. Now, you got to know, that did not set well with the Jews, right? And some think the crowd that beat up Sosthenes were Greeks, because now they might have felt like they have greater freedom to express their anti-Jewish sentiment under Galileo. I happen to think, though, it was probably more of a Jewish crowd. I mean, they came there to complain about Paul. We assume that Sosthenes, as the leader of the synagogue, was there to represent them. They've been losing converts, all right, to Christianity. And Galileo ruled against the Jews. So Sosthenes failed in his job. And it wouldn't surprise us that Galileo ignored the beating that he was getting because he didn't want to have anything to do with it. That fits within this context. Verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila at Sincrea, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. Now, Acts 18, 18 through 22 is kind of a a transition period between the second and the third missionary journeys of Paul. It concludes the second journey with Paul going to Antioch, who was the the sending church in the province of Syria. And then before and after Antioch, we know that Paul visits Ephesus. However, Luke mentions a personal reason 
for Paul to stop at Sancria. Paul apparently stopped at the local Hudson Hawk in Sancria to get a haircut. (laughs) He had taken a vow before God, which meant for a period of time, he would not have his hair cut and he would not have any alcohol. Now, whether this fit within a, a Jewish or Nazarite vow, in this vein in the first century. Usually those lasted for about 30 days. They were a way of giving thanks to God for how he had worked in your life. And so knowing how God had made good on his promise to protect Paul at Corinth, we could see this fitting well within uh, him. Now concluding this vow with having his hair cut. Okay, uh, perhaps Paul's expressing his appreciation for how God has moved in his life in this way. Now, here's one little tidbit that for these vows to be legit, the person had to take the hair that had been cut and lay it on the altar in Jerusalem. That would complete the vow. And many think verse 22 allows for a Jerusalem trip when it says, he, meaning Paul, went up and greeted the church. So Paul was in Caesarea, which was in striking distance of Jerusalem. Now, I don't know that with any, in any absolute sense, but it seems at least fit the context. What can we take away from this, this practice that was rich in Jewish tradition? And often these traditions get lost in the modern church culture today, do they not? I mean, this was a a prescribed system to give thanks. There was a deliberate ceremony that one could participate in that that effectively conveyed their appreciation to God. I mean, let's pause for a second and think about this, all right? We talked last week about the condition at which Paul arrived in Corinth. He lets us know what he was feeling when he got to the city in 1 Corinthians 2.3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear, and in much trembling. Okay, and we we said this last week. This is not full humility. This is an honest assessment of where he was at mentally and emotionally, right? I mean, he had been beaten before. He had been sent to jail before. He had had riots that were caused in some of these cities as a result of him coming to some of these cities. And he certainly anticipated fierce opposition going to Corinth, speaking to the synagogues. But God gave him that promise in Corinth that he would not be harmed, and God kept his word. So for 30 days, all right, every time he looked at his hair or felt his hair, every time he was at a meal and somebody offered wine and he had to say no because he was in the middle of this vow, it reminded him to give thanks to God. It was a a memorial, a remembrance of thankfulness to God. Let me ask you, what do we have in our life in terms of a, a routine, a way to remind us to give thanks to God? I mean, Paul had to be reminded, right? He had to be reminded. Paul was certainly human. He was prone, just like we were, uh, to maybe forget things, and, and he had these things set within his life to remind him to give thanks. 
So how, how do we do that? You know, I doubt that we're going to cut our hair or, you know, have, say we're not going to drink something, but, uh, I mean, you could, and there's nothing wrong with that, I suppose. But it could be as simple as, as starting your day uh, and saying, you know what, I'm going to give a half a dozen things that I'm going to be thankful for. Let me tell you something that's transformative. And I know many of you won't do it because you're not going to believe me. But it can be this simple. You got problems with one of your kids? You got problems between you and your spouse? You got problems with a boss at work? Covenant? That for 30 days, you'll have a half dozen things that you'll be thankful for. For that person. Every day. Now, I guarantee you, your attitude will change. As you give thanks to God for having this person in your life. Have you been making accusations? How about others? Are, do you assume the worst? Probably a good, a good reminder that you're not giving thanks. Do you complain a lot? It's a good reminder that you're probably not giving thanks. When you talk smack about family members or your job or any other organization, I can almost guarantee you there's not a remembrance in your life to give thanks. You know, it's, it's a lot harder to complain after you have recounted how God has worked in your life and you're thankful. Same holds true for any other area of our life. Now, it's not that we can't address problem areas. It's not that we can't discuss issues. But addressing issues with a grateful heart, that, that's a far cry from complaining with no solution in mind, railing on somebody. I want you to write this down. Forget everything I've said today. Write this down. There is no joy without gratefulness. There is no joy without gratefulness. I like that when you talk back to me, all right? No, I'm serious. I love it. There is no joy without gratefulness. Here's the testimony of Scripture. Nehemiah, after the wall was completed. And they offered great sacrifices that day. And, God, and rejoice, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The men, the women, and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Psalm 118, the first verse says, For the Lord, he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And then you jump to verse 15, The sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. There's a connection between being thankful and our ability to experience joy. You know, people often ask me, you know, what do I think of people taking medication for depression? And I'm not going to sit here and act like I'm an expert on it, okay? I'm not one that's usually prone to that. I think if it's a physical problem, God gives you the ability to, to take medication for it. But this is what I always say to people. Just consider if it is a spiritual or emotional issue, maybe something you haven't, you haven't resolved with somebody, address those first instead of paying a, bunch, you know, a lot of money on, on medicine. Just go through the, the steps, right? And if you're not thankful and, and you're still down in the dumps, do that and see if there's not a change. Now, it may not affect you. There may still be physical issues, and that's fine. I'm not, I'm not dogging that, but I'm just saying I think you have to first address these spiritual and emotional things as well. 
we're prone to think that joy and thankfulness are just something that happens to us, and I don't think that's the case. I think it's something we choose. If you lack joy, try being more thankful and watch the difference that God makes in your heart. Verse 19, they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. For he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. Now, if we are correct in assuming that Paul went to Jerusalem in verse 22, then before then, he travels to Ephesus and he leaves Priscilla and Aquila to minister there. And the Ephesians wanted Paul to stay a little longer, but he seemed compelled to leave. So if he did go to Jerusalem in verse 22, we, I think, know the reason why he felt compelled to go to Jerusalem to complete this vow. Now, we know that Ephesus was an an ancient city, had ports there, a very important city. It sits in what we today know uh, as Turkey, on the west side of Turkey. And there's some ruins there that can even be seen today. But Paul went regularly into the Jewish synagogue to reason with the Jews that Christ was indeed the Messiah. Now, I grew up within a tradition that saw the proclamation of the gospel as a one-way communication. You could have a track or whatever, but your, your victim sat there for 20 minutes and listened to your spiel, and then, you know, you would ask for the close. Now, and it sounds like I'm negative on it, and I guess I am, because I think there's a better way. I, I think that, that you can actually show respect to somebody and involve yourself in a conversation, that you make this a dialogue. And I think that we as a church have to ask ourselves, what are we doing in our evangelistic endeavors as a church providing this dialogue? It's one of the reasons why on some Sundays when we have time, we do a Q&A. We're trying to create a culture that it's okay to ask questions. Do we have that when uh, we are presenting the gospel? I think that that's uh, one of the best ways that uh, we can convey the gospel to somebody. Author Dan Brown wrote, of course, his best-selling novel, The Da Vinci Code. And at first glance, the plot isn't anything that stands out above the normal mystery fair, the uh, murder of a curator at the Louvre in Paris, leads to a, a trail of clues found in the works of Leonardo da Vinci, and to the discovery of a centuries-old secret society, according to the book. But as the plot unfolds, we find woven throughout the narrative a thorough rejection of the truth of the Christian faith. Specifically, Brown suggests that the church invented the deity of Christ. So it wasn't just a novel. Brown put forward a, a fiction and historical assertion that suggests that the entire foundation upon which Christianity is established is false. Now, we're all probably aware of that because it's, you know, it's been around for quite a while, so I'm not railing on that aspect of it, but what moved him to get to that point? And in an interview that promoted a later book, he was asked, are you religious? And here was his answer. He said, I was raised Episcopalian, And I was very religious as a kid. 
Then in eighth or ninth grade, I studied astronomy, cosmology, and the origins of the universe. I remember saying to a minister, I don't get it. I read a book that said there was an explosion known as the Big Bang. But here it says, God created heaven and earth and the animals in seven days, which is right. Unfortunately, the response I got was, nice boys don't ask that question. A light went off, and I said, the Bible doesn't make any sense. Science makes much more sense to me. And I just gravitated away from religion. So how can we as a church create these venues for people to feel safe and to ask those questions? I think that is going to be our challenge in the days ahead. And one thing I'm going to challenge our staff to and our elders to consider. Verse 22, and when he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. I mean, this passage just seems like a travelogue, just seems like an insignificant recounting of all the places that he went to. But there's so much more here. This is what we see. At Caesarea, he greeted the church. At Antioch, which was the sending church, he went and visited there. We probably know that he, he gave a report because everybody's interested in knowing how things have gone on this second trip. At Galatia and Phrygia, he strengthened all the disciples. And we've already read that at Ephesus, he reasoned with the disciples. At Sincrea, he had a holy haircut. The point is, at every travel point, Paul was intentional to minister and contribute to the kingdom. I mean, contributing to the kingdom of God was in his blood so that everywhere he went, everything he was doing, it was contributing to the kingdom. I remember talking to an auto salesman who was a, working as a manager at a well-known auto dealership here in town. And the, the guy who owned it apparently went to church. And when my friend had said something to him about ethics, about doing something, the guy said, hey, listen, I talk about ethics at church on Sunday, and that's not from Monday through Friday here at work. So there's a separation that a lot of people have about their faith and, and how they go about their business. That is not a biblical view. Contributing to the kingdom of God was something that Paul did everywhere he went. You can't look at ministry as something relegated to what we do on a Sunday morning inside a church building just teaching Sunday school. That certainly is a part of ministry, but what I want to tell you is there is so much more to that. It's how you do your job, your vocation. It's the way you operate in your neighborhood, right? It's, it's how, you, how you do business and, and, and when you visit other businesses, how you deal with people. I mean, these things are a part of our extension in our ministry, being a part of the kingdom of God, expressing the fact that we are a servant of Christ 
and how we deal in all of these situations. Everything is ministry. I remember talking to a doctor once, years ago. He wanted so much to be involved in ministry. And he could, and I tried to talk to him. Listen, dude, that's what I call all my doctors, dudes. And, and I said, listen, you, you are doing ministry right now. I mean, you deal with all kinds of people every day. And, and how you treat them and, and how you're ministering to their physical needs, that is ministry. He couldn't see it. So, so what does he do? He quits medicine. And he felt like he had to work for a Christian organization, and he bombed at it. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to quit medicine, but I'm saying first realize that there's a holistic view of ministry. And it's not just working for a Christian organization. It's everything we do, we are a part of the kingdom of God. So how you work, how you treat your customers, your, your family is your extension in the kingdom of God. That's your ministry. There's nothing wrong with strategizing about how to make a profit in your business. You should do that. There's nothing wrong with getting together with your leadership and, and maximizing the effectiveness of your employees. You should do that. But for the Christian, I'm not saying do this in a business meeting, but for the Christian, your first question is, how do I, as a servant of Christ, participate in the kingdom of God in my work? That's your first question. And then all these other things will fall into place. How are you expressing the grace of God in your relationships to those who have disappointed you, to those who have hurt you? Have you ever thought of it this way? That, you know, your ministry is to forgive those who've hurt you. You, know, you, you want to you know, you pay for Bible college, you want to go to seminary, nothing wrong with that. Okay, that's great. But you better get this real life ministry down first. I think a lot of guys think that, you know, I got to wear the suit and, you know, I got to have this spiel down and, you know, that's ministry. It's relegated to some kind of system like that. All I'm saying, that's not what's portrayed here in the scripture. Everywhere Paul went, he knew this is adding to the kingdom of God. Every person he came in contact with is about the kingdom of God. How are you going to pick up that mantle this week? With your family. At work. Okay? That's our job as believers. And maybe the reason that our Christian life lacks some kind of luster or joy we're just not taking it seriously. We think it's just, you know, doing a few things over here. This, this is not all that exciting. Well, I, I couldn't exist. I couldn't function without the involvement of Christ in my life. Life's just too friggin' hard. I couldn't handle the issues I have to face. And neither could you without having Christ. Now, I suppose you could at a certain level, right? I'm not saying you wouldn't survive, but you certainly wouldn't be able to function in a healthy degree. You'll probably be able to function in a way that keeps people at bay who hurt you. You create distance. But see, as a Christian, one of the ministries we have is reconciliation and forgiveness. And so we are adding to the relationships. We are servants of the king 24-7, and we serve him by loving others and loving God wherever we're at and with whatever we're doing.